Well, good morning. The last time I preached, uh, you might remember that I declared myself a parenting expert after a mere two weeks of um, child-raising experience. And uh, today, with about two months of experience, I would just like to tell you that whatever advice that I have for you is worth about as much as a $12 bill, which is to say that sometimes you don't know what you don't know. So... This one thing I've learned a little bit, and, and really I've stolen this from like a radio commercial, so it might, it might sound familiar. Um, but, and this, for some of you, this might be the only thing you remember about this morning, is that it's a lot easier to be a father than it is to be a dad. You know, being a father is a matter of biology. But being a dad is a matter of the heart. You know, I, heard, I heard this on the radio that anyone can be a father, but it takes a man to be a dad. For followers of Jesus, being a Christian means more than just calling God our father, but it means learning to trust him as our daddy. And if you remember last week, Randy talked about uh, Nicodemus. We saw that Nicodemus arrived at night to speak with Jesus. Uh, Randy said that he was sneaking in to speak with Jesus because of his political um, and political identity as a leader of the Jews. Now, he was a member of the ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. And even though Nicodemus was close to God, even though he knew much of God, he was spiritually dead. He knew what to do, he knew how to act, he knew what words to pray, and he knew what God was. But face to face with the God-man Jesus, he didn't recognize God. He knew about God, but he didn't know God. You know, Randy also shared that if we look at the statistics about what self-professing Protestants say about heaven, that the vast majority of them don't even really understand what their faith says about how to get there. Um, so today we'll unpack that a little bit more. Uh, we'll look at what Jesus says about eternal life. So if you would, we'll stand, stand with us, and we will open back to John chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to your word this morning. Father, you would make it clear what you say. Father, that we would know how and why that we need you. God, teach us how to put our faith and our trust in you. Amen. This is John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And I'll be reading out of the NIV, so it might sound a little bit different than yours. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish, Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter the, a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the spirit. 
Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and, you do, and do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How, then, will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake into the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. You may be seated. So in this conversation, Jesus introduces the idea that is about to be the main theme in the entire New Testament. And that is the rebirth, or a new birth. Being born again. Today we're going to examine the rebirth Why do we need to be reborn? What is this anyway? What is a spiritual rebirth? And then, of course, how does it happen? Um, So first, why do we need to be born again? And the simple answer is this, because no one is good enough to get to heaven. This is really important because, like Randy said last week, most people who call themselves Protestant Christians believe that the way they get to heaven is through their works. You know, you do enough good stuff to balance out the bad stuff. You know, let's look at who Jesus was actually talking to. Nicodemus was no slouch. In fact, Jesus calls him Israel's teacher. He's highly educated, not only in the Bible, but also in ethics and academics. He knew the Old Testament probably better than anybody that you know. He's a Pharisee. And the Pharisees make great efforts to obey the law of God. In fact, the Pharisees had this oral tradition, which was... Uh, you might describe it as a fence around the law, so that they couldn't even get close enough to break the law. They had this other man-made oral law that, that they put before God's law so that they could be good enough to get to God. You know, the oral tradition wasn't God's law, but it was their addition to the law. Now, maybe like some of you, I kind of had this um, oral law to myself. Like when I was growing up, I considered it almost like sinful to listen to non-Christian music because that was how what was modeled to me in my church, in my church family, that you know, if, if you listen to anything that wasn't on the Christian radio station, that that was a sin. Now, and you won't find, thou shalt only listen to Way FM in the Bible. You know, but, but, but I kind of acted like you did. Um, and, and I still kind of have this struggle with it, that, that there's this man-made law, this self-made law, that I made is more important than what God's word said. Because my law, it was easy for me to obey that command because I made it. And then I could look and see other people who didn't follow my law and I'd feel prideful about myself. So all my law did was make me prideful as opposed to make me holy. And we see that God's law was not created to make us right on the outside You know, my law just fixed my external behavior. You you push the button on the radio and change the channel. 
But God's law instead was to convict the sinful nature of man's heart. God's law was to bring about real, true change. So am I calling myself a Pharisee? I guess kind of. You know, this is the, this is the temptation of those of us who are within uh, the church or those of us who are religious, um, who, who come to church, who go to, um, to Sunday school, is that, is that we can make these laws around God's laws. And we make it more important to obey the laws on the outside than what our hearts truly say about ourselves. Now, there's this stigma that's associated with the Pharisees today. But in their day, they were like the best of the best, like the cream of the crop. If you would ask anybody if the Pharisees were going to be in heaven, they would say yes. Everything that they did on the outside looked perfect. Yet Jesus and John the Baptist both had other words for them. When the Pharisees came out to be baptized by John, he called them a brood of vipers. That is not a compliment. Although some of you might be thinking, that's a really good name for a fantasy baseball team. Jesus calls them hypocrites, snakes, blind guides, children of hell, and whitewashed tombs of dead bones. This is his words for the best of the best. And for those of us who are trying to earn our way to God, these guys are way better than we could ever be. So if we subscribe to the belief that you can be good to get to heaven, those are God's words for us as well. Why the harsh words? Because they had removed the spiritual and replaced it with the institutional. Now Romans 6.23 tells us that the gift of God is eternal life. They removed God from the equation and they turned heaven into something that could be earned instead of something, instead of a gift that is given. You know, a gift can never be earned. Think about how life would be if we acted this way. You know, if we said that in order to receive a gift, you had to earn it. Imagine being at a child's birthday party. And the parents are saying, you know, we kept a list this year of all the the times that you were good and all the times that you were bad. And you hit your brother like 75 times, but you only hugged him four times, so you don't get any gifts. Now, some of you are probably thinking, if that kid hugged his brother four times, he gets a gold medal, right? Um... Or think of a baby shower. You know, a baby hasn't done anything at all. It's not even born yet. And we give it clothes and toys and diapers. And even when it gets here, all it does is scream and poop and vomit. (laughs) And yet we lavish it with gifts. You know, you get the occasional smile and the parents get all excited, but nobody gives me a present when I smile at them. Gets excited. (laughs) You know, we don't operate that you have to earn your gifts, and neither does God. But by believing that we can earn our way to heaven, we believe that that's how God operates. Salvation is a gift that costs us nothing. This is a quote from Oswald Chambers. He says, The heart of salvation is the cross of Christ. The reason salvation is so easy to obtain is that it cost God so much. The cross was the place where God and sinful man merged with a tremendous collision and where the way to life was opened. But all the cost and pain and the collision was absorbed by the heart of God. See, it cost us nothing, but it cost God everything. We must experience a spiritual rebirth, be born again, because it's impossible to earn eternal life. 
So that's the why. Um, but now, what does it mean to be born again anyway? I think the best way to look at, at what it means, um, first of all, we, to see that Nicodemus was even confused at this idea. You know, he didn't really understand what it meant to be born again. Jesus te- when Jesus tells him no one can, enter the, can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, Nicodemus asks, how is it possible to reenter the mother's womb? You know, perhaps it's obvious, but that's not what Jesus is saying to us. You know, he's not saying that we must re-enter our mother and come back out again. You know, because I imagine that would be very uncomfortable for both us and our mothers, if this is what he was saying. Rather, Jesus replies that in order to be born again, we must be born of the Spirit. Jesus tells Nicodemus that flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. So being born of the Spirit means born of a new nature. The old you, the flesh, was born into the human, sinful human nature, but the new you is born into the offspring of the Holy Spirit. Um, so the best way to see this is kind of contrasting the life of the Spirit and the life of the flesh. Now the word flesh has some negative connotations now. Um, the New Testament has some really harsh words about the works of the flesh. But really, if we look at just the word flesh, all that means is natural man. You know, us with skin on. That's what it is to me, what it means to be flesh. The life of the flesh is temporary. It's the temporary life of the physical man. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says that what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So the life of the flesh is temporary. It was never meant to last forever. Um, if you looked up the oldest people living, oldest people alive in the history of the recorded word outside of some of the people we have in the New Old Testament, we see that the oldest verified living man was Christian Mortensen, who lived to be 115 years and 252 days old. That's pretty old. The oldest verified living woman, I think she's French, Jean Calament, maybe, lived to be 122 years old and 122 years, 164 days. What's the one thing in common with both of them? They're dead. (laughs) So the life of the flesh, it's temporary, it's finite. There's a beginning, there's an end. There's a pastor, John Piper, who tweeted this week, world death rate holds steady at 100%. (laughs) You know, everyone who is born of the flesh will die. Because the flesh is temporary. The flesh is destined for death. In contrast, the life of the spirit is eternal. And the second part of that verse is that what is unseen is eternal. You can't, but you can't walk up and down the street um, physically telling the difference between someone who's born of the spirit and someone who's born of the flesh. You know, they don't make like a detector where you can like hold it up to somebody and they're like, beep, 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 oh, that person right there. You know, you can't see it. But even though you can't see it, it's still real. Jesus describes it, compares it to the wind. That we can't see the wind, but we can see the effects of the wind. We can see the branches blowing in the, in the, in the wind. We can see leaves moving. We can feel the wind on our faces. So it is with the life of the Spirit that we can't see the life of the Spirit. But we can see the effect of the Spirit in people's lives. But the life of the Spirit, just like the life of the flesh, it has a beginning. When the Spirit is planted within us by God. So a lot of times we don't even know when that happens. That, that, we'll, that, that sometime later we can look back and go, my life has changed. We can look back and see exactly 
what God did in us. But it's not always this big, magnificent moment. It's not always this mountaintop experience where you just walk up on the mountain and God changes you right then and there forever. I think a lot of us kind of get nervous sometimes. We don't have that moment in our lives. But, but God can plant the spirit inside of us and we might not even realize it. But it has, so it has a beginning, but the life of the spirit has no end. Jesus says that being a born again means eternal life, life forever. Unlike God, someone who's born again has a beginning. But like God, the person who is born again will experience the eternal kingdom with God. And another contrast between the life of the spirit and the life of the flesh is focus. The life of the flesh is inwardly focused. It's very consumeristic. It's all about myself and achieving my goals. You know, my goals of family or my goals of finances or my goals of status. (coughs) Yet when those goals are actually realized, what else is there? You know, like most American boys, I grew up wanting to be a professional athlete. Um, I'd always wanted to get paid to play, like, hockey or baseball or football. Um, You know, I was never, like, a special athlete. I never put the time or effort into actually becoming a great athlete. But I always dreamed of, like, being this great big athlete. Now, imagine with me, take a big leap of the imagination, that I actually did become a pro athlete, like, on the scale of, like, Michael Jordan or Peyton Manning. You know, I worked hard. I strived, I succeeded, I spent my entire life devoted to my athletic maturity, and I accomplished my goal of batting cleanup for the world champion Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, that that takes a big stretch of the imagination. When I was little, it didn't. That was before 17 straight years of losing, okay? But I live it up, I enjoy the American dream, I become successful, I I become an MVP of the World Series, and then my career is over, and I'm 35 years old. And everything that I was working towards my entire life is already accomplished. What else is there? Did you know that something like 75% of professional athletes are bankrupt within three years of retirement? That's crazy. There are guys that are getting paid multi-million dollar salaries. They're still playing. They're still receiving those checks, and they file for bankruptcy. Now, why is that? It's because the life of the flesh is consumeristic. It is all about me and what I want in my needs, in my passions, in my taste, in my thirst. The life of the flesh is insatiable. It's never satisfied. And we know it's not satisfied because we can, all the time we see people who have everything, and yet they're never satisfied. You know, every time we open the newspaper, we see something about some celebrity ex who goes and does this and does that, and it's too easy now with Charlie Sheen, Right? <clears throat> I mean, he has everything, all the money in the world, and yet we see what a self-combustible thing that the life has become. That when life is all about us, we're consumed with ourselves. So the life of the, of the physical life is inward-focused, but the spiritual life is outward-focused. Now, Rick Warren begins his book, Purpose Driven Life, with this line. It's not about you. The reborn Christian life is living a life with purpose, living life on purpose. And we've talked here before about missional living and what it means to live a life on mission. If life is not about me, then that must mean that life is about something that's not me. 
The Bible tells us that all of life, all of creation, everything that ever is and was and is to come, all of it is about God. And the Bible is a story of God and how he moves throughout history. And yeah, we see some great characters in there. We see David. We see Esther. Um, we see Moses. But the Bible is not even about them. It's about what God did in them and through them. The, the answer in the Westminster Catechism to the question, what is the meaning of life? What is the chief end of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And the reborn life is about making much of God. And this life doesn't make sense at all to the flesh. The flesh doesn't get the idea that life couldn't be about me. You know, there's this constant battle that's raging in every believer between the life of the spirit and the life of the flesh. Between life about me or life about God. But the flesh sees people living for Christ, and it makes absolutely no sense. You know, we knew people in Pittsburgh that um, it was a financial professional. He and his wife sold everything gave it away, and, and became missionaries in Africa. But that life makes no sense at all to the flesh. Because if it's about me and my comfort, what are they doing? There must be something wrong with them. You think of, a, of someone who's, who devotes their time to um, investing in kids after school, to tutoring and sharing the gospel. That doesn't make sense to the life of the flesh. So the life of the flesh is outward focused, and has the life of the spirit is outward focused, has incredible meaning. Now, it's possible to have meaning apart from God. You know, it's possible to help somebody out without being in the name of Jesus. You know, it, it has a little bit of meaning, but when we do that, we, can rob, we rob God of the glory that he deserves. You know, we can kind of catch this in part, where if you have unbelieving friends or if you're an unbeliever and you go and help and you serve, you know, it makes you feel really good to, 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 lighten, to, to, to brighten up someone's day. You know, it feels really good. I heard about NFL players who were going to Africa, and they were giving hearing aids to people who were thought to be deaf. But really, they just needed hearing aids. They talked about how great it felt that, that they spoke, and for the first time in their lives, these people heard something. They got all excited. So there's this partial meaning that we can do things for others without God. But we can't get the full meaning of life without Jesus. You know, ask somebody, ask two people who go and... And, and, and live a life as, as missionaries or volunteers, and, and they're both bringing water to some place in Africa. And the unbeliever will say, you know, you ask them why they do it. You know, it makes me feel really good about myself. I love that feeling I get. Now, if you ask the believer, they'll say, I'm doing this because I'm compelled by Christ to serve and to love. You know, there's this difference. In, it's not the same. They're doing the same exact thing, but the meaning is completely different. Now, do you think that the world would be different if everyone who called themselves a born-again born Christian lived a life about God as opposed to a life about themselves? So the reborn life of the Spirit is about the Spirit of God alive in me, active in me, making much of God with me. You know, finally, how? How do I get the spiritual life? How can I be reborn? What do I have to do? You know, Nicodemus asked how, and Jesus answered him that like Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, the Son of Man must be lifted up. And to figure out what this means, we have to turn to Numbers chapter 21. So if you would, turn to Numbers chapter 21 with me.
know, the people of God here have been led by God out of Egypt. They're wandering around in the desert. They'd already crossed the Red Sea. They're waiting to get to the promised land. This is Numbers chapter 21. Let's start in verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the road, along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. So the people complain. God had provided for them. They complained about the miserable food that was the manna from heaven. You know, God is leading them. God is protecting them. And they're so quick to turn on God. So God sends these poisonous snakes to bite them. So then they come back. They ask Moses. Moses, pray to God for us. Moses prays. God commands him to make this snake, bronze, snake out of bronze, put it up on a pole. And anyone who looks at it would live if they were bitten by the venomous snake. And Jesus says that just like the snake was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him will be saved. So how does anyone experience the rebirth? Now there's two pretty easy steps. The first step is repentance. Repentance is what Jesus was talking about when he told Nicodemus that we must be born of, the, of water. That meant baptism. You know, John, John the Baptist was out baptizing people those who had heard his call to repent for the kingdom of God is near. They came for a symbolic washing of their sin, to confess their sins to God. Now, repentance is different than just saying that we're sorry for our particular sins. You know, like cheating on our taxes or, you know, kicking the dog. Although if we're doing those things, we should probably stop. Repentance means that realizing that our primary sin isn't trying to save ourselves. That through the good and bad we do, through putting all of our hope and significance in our career or our family or our good works, sometimes we even need to repent of church and religion. Repentance means changing our heart. It means saying to God that I can't save myself, only you can. So we must confess the things beside God himself that we've been relying on for our hope, our significance, and security. It means confessing both our actions and our motives. As oftentimes our actions can look pure, but our motives are not. It's coming face to face with the reality that we are inadequate to be our own saviors. So we must repent. And the second thing that we must do is believe. Believe in Jesus. Be born of the Spirit. Believe that he is who he said he is. That we need salvation and that he is the answer. Tim Keller describes it. He says that we need to see the story and meet the hero. That when we believe in Jesus, we're trusting God with all of our significance, all of our security, and all of our salvation. 
And our belief is not based on the strength of our faith. It's not how strong we believe. But it's in the object of our faith. You know, Keller puts it like this. It doesn't matter how strongly you believe that the medicine works. All you have to do is take it. Now, if you believe the medicine works, but you never take the medicine, you'll never get better. We don't have to wait for all of our doubts and all of our fears to go away before we look to Christ. Because faith isn't about us, but it's all about him. Oswald Chambers writes that the cross is the central event in time and eternity and the answer to all the problems of both. Belief means recognizing and rejecting our fleshly efforts and turning instead to God and asking him for a relationship based not on what we've done, but on what he has done for us. And we do this in a community of believers, uh, people that can stand beside us, to help to convict us of our sin when we can't see it ourselves, uh, people who can encourage us when we're down and we're in despair, uh, people who can pray for us when we're, when we're hurt and we need healing. You know, all the time we need community. We need people around us that we can worship with and praise God with. So this morning, I just invite you to consider the call of Jesus to be reborn. He invites us to reject the belief that we can save ourselves and to look to him and him only for all of our security, our significance, and our salvation. Let's pray. Father God, this morning we come face to face with ourselves in Scripture. Father, to so many of us, we see Nicodemus in us. God, that we've tried so hard to earn our way to you. Lord, that we built laws that we can keep. But God, it just makes us look good on the outside. It never addresses our heart. Father, we ask that you would forgive us of the sin of trying to save ourselves. Lord, that we would repent and turn to you and look to you as the only source of our salvation. Lord, help us as we go through this week to open our eyes to see who we really are and to see who you've called us to be. Amen. Our hymn is 497, Like a River Glorious. Let's stand as we sing 497.